0: Well, things didn't exactly go to plan on uh, this past Sunday. And so uh, we just took an opportunity to re-record Message for this weekend. As uh, we are kicked off a brand new series uh, in the book of Malachi. Super excited. Uh, the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Malachi and walking through uh, what this book is all about. And we've entitled the series Faithful. Faithful. And uh, I think faithfulness is really the core message that we see throughout the book of Malachi. Now, faithfulness is something we all get, right? We all understand the idea of faithfulness. I think we see it in sports. I know some of you don't like sports, but for others of you, man, you are faithful to your team. Cause you know, sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're really bad and it really doesn't matter. For some reason, we're still cheering. You know, I remember, what was it? Three weeks ago, the Vikings, they win the big game in New Orleans. Nobody thinks they're gonna win. They pull it off and I, you know, we're just going crazy. Everybody's so excited. And then two, you know, a week later, you know, they get destroyed by the 49ers. And uh, I know I said this on Sunday, but I was really, just my, my soul was just filled, you know, a week ago when we got to watch the Packers get destroyed as well by the 49ers. So we all appreciate those things. But, but I love in the middle of these games, like when, when the game is, is going down, my wife Amber, she loves the Vikings. She's a huge fan. And so uh, she, you should watch her when she's, when she's watching a game. It's just crazy. She's, she's up, she's losing it, she's whatever. Uh, but at the end of the game, she's like, why do I do this to myself? Why do I do this to myself when it comes to the Vikings? Because she just loves them so much, you know? The fact is, she's faithful, right? The good, the bad, she's faithful. We also understand this idea of faithfulness when it comes to relationships. And my guess is there's a lot of us who at some point in our life, a relationship has had a question when it comes to faithfulness. Maybe it was the faithfulness of the other party. Maybe it was our own faithfulness. And I know some of you may have been hurt because of those things. But we understand this truth just so clearly It's this, that the quality and the health of any relationship hangs on the faithfulness of both parties. If you're going to have a a quality relationship, it takes faithfulness on both parts. And this is what the book of Malachi is all about. Now, some of the series that we have around here are going to be warm and fuzzy and just make you feel good. And this first message will have a little bit of that in it. Uh, But the full series that we're going into, it's going to be one that meddles with us. It's going to be one that challenges us, that that really speaks to us with some hard questions. And I think at the end of the day, every single one of us is going to be forced to ask ourselves, will I be faithful? This morning's message uh, is a little bit bit more uh, teaching than it is preaching, and so I'm going to encourage you just to stick with me as we get through this, all right? right, We're going to begin by reading our text in Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1, Malachi 1.1. And as I, I talked about it on Sunday, the, uh, Malachi is not a book that we always read all the time. And so if you ever have a hard time reading or finding where at, don't, don't get too worried about it. Open your index, figure out where it's at, turn your way there, okay? Here's what it says. A prophesy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. "'I have loved you,' says the Lord. "'But you ask, how have you loved us? "'Was not Esau Jacob's brother?' declares the Lord." Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And every time we come to your word, God, we say this. We want to have ears that are open to hear from you. We want to have eyes that see clearly, and we want to have hearts that are tender to whatever you have to say. And so, God, I pray you would speak through this time we have together. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, they're going to bring up a, an image here on the screen. It's called a magic eye. How many of you have ever have seen one of these magic eye images. I know when I look at these things they drive me crazy uh, because I have never ever seen what I'm supposed to see. Like when I look at these things it just looks like a bunch of colors. It makes no sense whatsoever to me. But there's a truth when it comes to these things because if you know what you're seeing here apparently this image we're talking about is supposed to have a shark in there somewhere. I've never seen a shark, I don't know where it is. But I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Obviously, I've never figured out how my eyes are supposed to see these correctly. And so here's the truth that we understand about these things. It's this. If you don't know how to look correctly, you won't see correctly. If you don't know how to look correctly, you won't see correctly. If you don't know how to look, you're not going to see what it is you're supposed to see. This principle is 100% true when it comes to Scripture. Scripture. And I've said this before, that my job as a pastor isn't just just to preach and inspire you, but part of my job is to help point us in the right direction and to, to teach us some of those core things that we need to know. And so before we even jump into the book of Malachi, I want to stop and I want us to look at some core principles and, and ideas that we need to understand before we jump into Scripture. The ways that we need to look so that we can see the right thing. All right. There's two things uh, that, that I want you to understand. The first one is this. Scripture was written for you, but not to you. Scripture was written for you, but not to you. What do I mean? You were not the original audience. When it comes to Scripture, you weren't the original audience. You weren't the original receiver of this information. These books were written to a specific group of people at a specific time from a specific author. And if we bypass that, then sometimes we miss what the original intent was. You know, in our modern society, specifically our postmodern world, you know, we say, oh, it's your truth. Your truth is what matters. I got my own truth, you got your truth, everybody's got their own truth. But the reality is, if everybody's got the truth, there is no truth. And so when it comes to the Bible, we, I know a lot of times we'll get into a Bible study, we'll say things like this, like, what does this mean to you? What does the text mean to you? That's good, but you better not start doing that until we first know what is the text actually trying to say Because otherwise, we can come up with some crazy ideas for what Scripture is supposed to mean. Now, we understand this idea that Scripture is written for you but not to you when we get to the New Testament. Because a lot of the letters in the New Testament are very clear. It's like, I, Paul, am writing to this group of believers in Philippia uh, or Philippi. and, and, And there's just some clarity. There's obviously some things he's addressing. There's all this kind of stuff. So, like, we get that. We have a hard time, really, when we go into the Old Testament, because very little of the Old Testament is written as a specific writer, writing to a group of people, and you don't, all, you don't understand who is the audience at the time and how does that influence things. And So really, in the Old Testament, we've got to stop and we've got to say, okay, what can we understand about the writer? What can we understand about the audience, all right? And one of the examples that I have for this is the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings that can come out of the book of Genesis because a lot of times we just will open a Bible living in 2020 and we start in chapter 1 and just read in the beginning and we start reading through the book of Genesis with the lens of a 2020 modern you know person and we miss the fact that there was a an author writing to an audience for a specific reason. And the author most likely was Moses who was writing to this group of believers who were... Uh, coming out of Egypt and they had Egyptians mentalities of what God was like and what the world was like and M- Moses is writing this to confront those things to help them understand to give this picture of who God is in contrast to the understanding that they had coming out of Egypt and so a lot of the things that we get caught up in the nuances and the details of it he's really trying to just totally change the foundation the t- the base foundation of their understanding of who this God is And we miss those kind of things. And so it's really important for us to understand that it is for us, but we must understand it was not written to us originally. Context really, really matters. Uh, I I talked about this a little bit, and I've talked about this before, that prosperity theology is an example. We have uh, issues of, of prosperity theology being taught all over the place. And there are elements to prosperity that may be good. Obviously, God cares about us. But too often it goes to the next level saying like all God wants for you is for you to be rich and to have all the stuff and to have no problems. And yet that comes in direct conflict with things Jesus spoke about his followers saying, you're going to be hated, you're going to be despised, you're going to have troubles in this world. It's in conflict. Why is it that people latch hold? They latch hold of prosperity theology by dipping oftentimes into the Old Testament and grabbing promises that were written to a specific people at a specific time and claiming them for themselves without taking any understanding of the context. And so it's very important for us as followers of Christ, when we look at scripture, that we understand, okay, this is for me, but who, will, who was it written to initially? And what does then that mean for me today? Okay, the second uh, concept, well, before I jump there, just, just one last thing is, that You might say to yourself, well, how in the world am I ever supposed to know this? How am I supposed to go to Scripture and understand anything? Uh, a very simple way to do that is to simply buy a, a, a good study Bible. You can get a NIV or a CSB is one that I love, ESV. There's a number of study Bibles. You get a good study Bible, what it'll do is before you get to a book of the Bible, it'll give you some base understanding of the audience and who this is about. And then throughout, you'll have footnotes that explain different parts of Scripture. And it's a really simple way to start to, to see Scripture as we need to see it, okay? Uh, The second point is this, is that we need to see the bigger story. When we look at Scripture, we need to see the bigger story. Oftentimes, we just pick and choose little things out, and we miss the fact that there is an overarching story of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, this is God's redemptive story. It's a picture of his redemptive plan, what he is doing in the world, and his redemptive plan culminates in the activity and the work of Jesus Christ and what he is to the world, this gospel that he brought to the world. But it is a continuation of this big picture, this redemptive plan that God is acting. Why is this so important to understand? Because if we're not careful, we'll look at scripture, and we'll, you know, especially you get into the Old Testament and you'll see that, man, there's some crazy stories. You ever read the Old Testament and just been like, what in the world was that? That's a weird story, like, that's a crazy thing. Like, I don't like that. Like, I don't know how I feel about that story, right? You begin begin to think, oh, this whole thing is just simply explaining all the good people in the world and giving us a picture of morality. That's not what the intention of Scripture is. The scriptures aren't just written there so that you can see all these model citizens and how they live their life. No, it is a picture, it is a story of God's redemptive plan in the world. Him working in this world, despite its brokenness, despite its flaws, despite all the problems, Him working in the world, and His plan is going to happen. Whether or not we always cooperate, God's purposes are going to take place. Why? Because it's all about His redemptive plan. See, if we read scripture just looking for morality, we're gonna have problems because even the people that we would say, man, these are the people we should try and be like. We should be like David, a man after God's own heart. You ever read all about David? (laughs) Like David's got some crazy stories in there. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. At times, he literally acted crazy just to try and get out of some things, right? Like this this is a guy who doesn't, you know, I wouldn't want all my sons acting like David all the time, right? And so we have to step back and recognize that the purpose of scripture is to see this bigger plan that's going on, that God is actively doing something to redeem all of mankind and creation for his glory. And it, and it, culminates in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, right? And that's why around here as a church, we don't say we're not just simply Bible-centered because we don't just simply walk and try and, you know, let's pluck little stories out of the Bible. No, we can just, unfortunately, try and develop just a good morality out of that. That's not the goal. The goal is that we would see the gospel, the good news of God's redemptive work in the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the big story that we're seeing, okay? Okay. And so those two principles are what we need to take as we get into the book of Malachi and start digging in, all right? Well, I don't know about you, but um, I'm not a huge movie buff, but occasionally I like to go see movies. Uh, This past, uh, about a month ago, uh, I was looking at the promotions for this last Star Wars movie that came out. I don't know if any of you are a big Star Wars fan. I have never really been a big Star Wars fan, uh, but I saw the promotion for this Star Wars movie. And, and I started thinking, man, this is the last one of this series, and we'll see if it's the last one, but it's supposedly the last one of this series. And I started thinking, like, I've never seen any of these Star Wars movies in a theater. I'd love to be able to say I saw at least one of them in a theater, right? And I thought, well, my boys are kinda of old enough to see them, because they're, they're just kinda of these action movies, and I'm like, It'd be cool if my boys 50 years from now could say they saw one of these movies in the actual theater. And so what we decided was, like, I can't go to the ninth movie because I'm going to have no idea what's going on in this movie. I need some context. So what did we do? About Christmas, we started watching movies. So we started with the original. We watched the fourth and then the fifth and then the sixth and the seventh and the eighth. And then just two days ago, I took my boys to see the final Star Wars movie. And it was so important because without all of that context, it made no sense. I would have been totally clueless. My boys would have been totally clueless. And so when it comes to a book of the Bible, we have to understand that context. And so to understand Malachi, you've got to understand first the author. There's not a lot that we know about the author, but his name means messenger, and and it is clear there's some disagreements initially, but the majority of of biblical scholars believe that this is truly a man named Malachi who lived as a prophet, uh, and he lived at a certain period of time, which we'll talk about in a moment. The audience he's writing to uh, would be considered post-exilic Judea. And uh, we'll explain a little bit of what that means, because I'm sure you're like, what in the world does that mean? If you look at the big story, and again, we talk about the big story, God initiates this plan of redemption of humankind through uh, coming to a man named Abraham. And he says, listen, I'm going to do something through you. It's not because you're so great, it's because I'm doing a work in the world. Remember, I'm doing this redemptive plan within the world. And eventually down the line, we get to a nation known as Israel, It's a people group that came out of the line of Abraham. And they're this this group of people who are God's special possession. He's at work with them. And remember, he's redeeming the world. He's got a plan. It isn't because they're so great because we know the stories. They screwed up all the time. But it was because he was doing a work in the world. And at one point, there's what's known as the unified kingdom of Israel. And there was three different, there was a King Saul, then King David, King Solomon. This is a period of time which is really the the greatest time in Israel, when everything was going well, they had the money, they had the influence, uh, they had the esteem. It was a great period, specifically under King Solomon, known as the wisest man in the world. There's just so many great things going on, right? Uh, But... When, like even today, when you have Jews talking about Israel and that this, they wish things would be restored, that's the picture they're talking about when the temple is, is working and functioning and where, when everything is going well and they, it's clear that they are God's people. His glory is shining on that group of people, right? Uh, but if you're familiar with the story, as soon as Solomon dies, almost instantaneously, the, the kingdom is divided into two different nations. Two different leaders try and take over. And there's what's known as the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, these two nations operate, and there's good kings, bad kings, a lot, lot more bad than good in each of these nations is they, they say, hey, God, we love you, and then they turn away and do their own thing. And over and over, there's just this story of going up and down and up and down. But eventually, they get to the point where the nation of Assyria takes over. Now, they're the powerhouse in the world. Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And the northern kingdom is exiled, taken away, and they are never on the planet again. They are gone forever, okay? Uh, But then we have the nation of Judah. Uh, The nation of Israel was in 722 BC. In 586 BC, now the Babylonians are in control of the world, and they now come, and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they exile people back to Babylon. And now they're struggling. Well, eventually, Persia takes over control of Babylon. And when Persia comes in, they actually allow these exiles to return back to the land. And so they're able to go back to their town in Israel. And there's different waves that come back. The first groups come back. And then a group comes back and is able to rebuild the temple. And then a group comes back and is able to rebuild the wall. And there's all this stuff. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But here's the reality. It's nothing like it once was. The temple is nothing like, in fact, uh, you can read the story, it says that people who were alive back when the, the old temple was there and they saw the rebuilt, they cried and they wept because it was nothing like it was, right? But the nation is there and God has restored them back to their, not because they were so good, they had failed over and over again, but God restores them back to their land, you know? Uh, but they they start doing the same thing they always do. They start going their own way, running away from God, doing the things that they shouldn't do. Right, and, and things get to this point where they're just bad again. They're weak, they're broken. They have no influence. They're still under the domination of the Persians. Right, they're this group of people that say we're supposed to be your people, God. We haven't acted like it. But why aren't you? Why aren't you taking care of us? You know, things are rough. Right. They'd be saying things that I'd probably be saying, God, if this, is, if this is your plan, like, I don't understand your plan. And God, if this is your plan, I don't know that I understand you. Maybe you've felt that way before. I know i felt that way. Like, God, I don't get this. I might have made this bed, but I still don't understand. Why aren't you taking care of me? God, I thought I was yours. This is where the nation of Israel is at at this time. So we get to the book of Malachi, and this is written to this group of people You know, it's just, you know, several decades after they have returned back to the land and and things just aren't exactly the way they thought. This is a perfect bridge into the New Testament. We'll talk about some of those reasons in the coming weeks. Uh, But when you look at the structure of Malachi, it's a very unique book. There's six disputes. God basically, through the prophet Malachi, brings six disputes to his people. He basically lists, hey, here's something I'm, I'm frustrated by. And then he assumes what their response is gonna be and so he speaks out what their response would be and then he doubles down and clarifies exactly what he means and he confronts them about something going on. And he does this six times throughout the book and so each week we're gonna be taking on one of these six disputes. And so week one, we're gonna dig into the very first and that's where we're at in Malachi chapter one beginning in verse number two. And it says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. See, God confronts right out of the gates. It's going to meddle later on, but he starts with his heart for these people. He says, I have loved you. Now, this is a statement, again, they may find this one hard to believe. Remember, they're in the hard time. The glory is gone. Things are not going well. It's been hard. They're pitiful. You know, they're under domination, all this kind of stuff. But this word love, it means more than just like, I feel ushy-gushy towards you. I just, I just have these warm feelings toward you. That's not what this word love really means in the original Hebrew. It carries with it this idea of, I have chosen you. This word love, it means I've, I've chosen you. And this is the reality. Remember when we talk about this big story of scripture? This is a reality. I have chosen you. I have loved you. You haven't been worthy of being chosen. You haven't done, you've failed over and over again. But listen, I have loved you. I've chosen you. I've continued to stay committed to you. This is speaking of a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham and then he made a covenant with Israel. And He's made this covenant over and over again with his people saying, listen, I'm gonna gonna be committed to you. It isn't a contractual thing. I'm, I'm all in with you. I'm gonna do this work. I'm gonna be faithful to that work, Right? And this is what he's saying, I have loved you. I have chosen you. But then he gives the response that he assumes they'll say, but you will ask, how have you loved us? He's like, how have you loved, what have you done for me lately, God? Like, how have you loved us? How have you chosen us? And this is when he reminds them of what he has done. He says, this was not Esau, Jacob's brother. What's he meaning there? If you're not familiar with the story, uh, there's Abraham and then Isaac. Isaac has two son, twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And it says, even before they were born, God chose Jacob, who he renamed Israel and became the nation of Israel. And then he didn't choose Esau, right? So he's got these two different lines coming out of the same mother. And he says, I have chosen Esau. Jacob, he is the one. He's the one that got the birthright, the blessing. He's the one that I have, I'm gonna work through. I'm gonna bless. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. He's gonna be a part of my redemptive plan. Listen, it's not because he's so great. It's because, remember, I'm doing this work in the world, and I am choosing to make him a part of this thing. Now, when you read the next part, you're gonna say, man, this sounds a little bit weird, but I want you to hear it. It says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. You hear that, and you're like, hmm. mm. That sounds really creepy. But this word love and hate, again, remember, it's not I have this ishy-gushy feeling and then I despise that guy because he's horrible. That's not what that means. I love it. I have chosen Jacob I have not chosen, I have not chosen to align myself with Esau. That's what he's saying. This isn't an issue of vindictiveness toward Esau, but it's rather he's talking about his faithfulness toward Jacob. He's trying to remind his people that he has been faithful. He has chosen this group of people, right? He has truly loved them despite what they're seeing. Now there's a little confusion in the text because you're like, he's talking about Esau and then in a few moments he talks about Edom may say some things. You need to understand Esau And Edom are referred to the, Esau was the original man named Esau, but they are referred to the people are referred to as Edomites throughout scripture. And uh, and so, and really when you hear Edom or Esau throughout the Old Testament, a lot of times it means more than just simply that people group, it means all other people groups other than Israel, okay? So what God is trying to say is, listen, I have chosen you, I haven't chosen any other people group. Apart from all nations of the world, you're the one that's chosen. Listen, you haven't been faithful to me. You've been screwing up. You've been going your own way. You've been having other gods. You have not done what I've asked you to do. But despite that, I have been faithful. And he goes on and, and he says, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. At this time, the Edomites had actually been destroyed about this period of time. And most likely what the Israelites are hearing them, say, this Edomite say is like, well, they're telling them they're going to rebuild and God, they're probably going to rebuild and they're going to be okay. And what about us? We're struggling. What God is saying, listen, they might say they're going to rebuild. They're not. Listen, they're not chosen. They're not going to endure. You are are going to endure, why, is it because you're so great, no, it's because I chose you, I have loved you, and I will be faithful to you, my redemptive plan is going to take place, and guess what, you're a part of this thing, so you better have some humility about this, but you can trust in my redemptive work, and what I am doing in the world, all right, I will carry through, And I love the way this passage ends. In verse five, it says this, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. What is he saying? In that period of time, people oftentimes would see that there was gods of a realm, right, territorial gods, would be the God of a nation, this nation has their God, this nation has their God, and, and they could do things within their realm, but they couldn't do anything else. There's a the God of the sky, God of the Sea, God of the Mountains, God of the land, God of the sun, all these kind of things. And and what what God is trying to speak to him is: listen, you're gonna realize that that I'm not the God of a realm, I am the God over all realms. I am the one with all power, and there is hope, and you can trust in me, Israelites, because I am that kind of a God. I am faithful. I am strong. My, my hope is available to you because it is not taken away. I am here, All right? It's just an amazing, amazing story, and Malachi's saying you can have confidence in the midst of your situation. I know things don't look good right now, I know know it feels disappointing right now, I know you're struggling, I know you're looking at the other nations, you're saying, well they're so strong and they've got, their God must be, no, 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 their God ain't any better, trust me, I am the God over all things. You can trust in my redemptive plan, it is going to take place, and we know as ones who can step back and see the bigger picture, that it absolutely took place. Despite the fact that they were not faithful, despite the fact that they were going their own way, what did God do? Through this group of people, 400 years later, birthed His Son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind. It says He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is coming again someday. There is hope, and God accomplished His plan, and He will accomplish His plan. Why? Because our God is faithful. We can trust that what He said will occur. So this is what He's saying the people struggling in Jerusalem. So what? What does that mean for us Uh, in 2020? here's, Here's what I think it means. When it comes to our relationship with God, here's a big so what. Our foundation is his faithfulness. Our foundation is his faithfulness. The foundation of our relationship with God is not our ability to be so great. No, it is His faithfulness to us. That's what He was trained. Listen, I'm doing this redemptive work. You remember He's saying, "Listen, I am the faithful one. You have not been faithful. I have been faithful, and the same is true for us today." Listen, He did a redemptive work, and the, the greatest and most clear expression of the faithfulness of God is Jesus Christ Himself, saying, "Listen." I will get into your mess. I will enter into the mess of your life, to, to the ick of your life. Uh, listen, I will, I will send myself, I'm not gonna stand up in heaven and say, figure this thing out, folks. You're gonna have to clean yourself up. No, he says, listen, I will enter into the world. I will take stripes on my back. I will take nails in my hands. I will take thorns in my brow. Why? Because my desire is, is to restore mankind, to redeem mankind. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. It's my faithfulness. Now listen, the rest of this series that we're going to get into, Malachi is going to be really clear. God's going to meddle with us through this. He's going to talk about stuff that we've got to deal with in our lives, things that we've got to get out of our lives, things that we need to change. This is going to be a challenging series. That's right. But we cannot forget that the foundation is none of that stuff. The foundation is... Is his faithfulness. The foundation of our relationship with this God in heaven is what he has done on our behalf, what he has made available to us. We don't need to hope for his faithfulness. We can trust in his faithfulness and we can trust in his redemptive plan and that it is going to be completed. This plan that culminates in the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the pinnacle Of God's redemptive work in the fullest expression of His faithfulness. Our foundation is His faithfulness, and so I want to look at a passage of Scripture that looks at Jesus Christ and reminds us of what does this faithfulness really look. What does it mean for us? How should it speak to our hearts? So, if you got your Bibles, look with me at Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. This is a chapter that's just chock full of stuff it's a it's a challenging passage there's a lot of stuff in here but it's one of those that you just got to read every once in a while because remember those israelites they were beginning to question they're like i don't God, i don't know do you really care about us and he's saying listen, listen remember i'm doing a work here i've loved you i've chosen you and we get to look at this passage and say in christ there's a confidence we can have you're doing a work here we can trust you Look what it says in Romans 8, 28. You're familiar with this verse. It says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, we take that verse out of context and just say, oh, yeah, that's right. God works all the good. No, he's, he's talking about a bigger, he's talking about this big redemptive plan. Listen, we can know that he's going to work stuff out. He's faithful, Right? goes on and says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God is faithful. He is doing a work. But He goes on. Verse 31 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? Hear this. If God... Is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it is God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hear this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. It goes on in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. So good. So good. Our God is faithful. Jesus Christ is the purest example, the purest expression of the faithfulness of God. Of God. You say, I don't see it, hear this. God would say this. Faithfulness isn't just something I do. Faithful is who I am. Christ says this: I will go anywhere to redeem mankind. So, like I said, Malachi is gonna meddle with us in the next few weeks. There's gonna be a challenges. I know I'm gonna have my life challenged. You're gonna have your life challenged. It's gonna be really good, right? We don't grow until we're challenged. But hear this, if all we see is what he's challenging and we miss this first understanding, it just turns into religion. We can't get to this until we understand this core truth that everything we do for God is in response to God, to his love, to his grace, to his faithfulness. Our foundation is his faithfulness. So so the challenge in our lives is to say, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you. No matter what I'm going through, no matter where I'm at, the challenges I've got going on, I can look around me and say, God, what have you done for me lately? I can look back and remember, God, you are faithful. You are faithful to accomplish what you have intended. Your redemptive plan of mankind and your redemptive plan in my life. And God, I'm gonna stand firm and confident on that foundation. There's other foundations that shake. There's other foundations that break. There's other foundations that don't last. But the foundation of his faithfulness will endure because our God is faithful. His faithfulness should inspire and challenge our faithfulness. So I got a challenge for you this week, and it's just simply this. Would you begin your day by reminding yourself of his faithfulness? You see, so often we, we go into our days and whenever we approach God, we only approach him to get some things, to ask him for some things. But what would happen this week if instead we just said, God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. I trust in your faithfulness even when I don't see, when I don't understand, God, I know that you are at work in the world, and I'm gonna rely on you. That's my prayer for every single one of us, no matter what you're facing. I know some of you are going through hard stuff. I know I go through hard things at times, but we can be confident that his redemptive plan is going to be completed, and that it's intended for our good. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you are a, a good, good Father. God, that you are faithful. You're not like us. You're not fickle. You're not just here one day and the other day you just move away and go do your own thing. God, instead, you are faithful. You endure. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, God, we turn our hearts to you. In our circumstances, we say, God, we trust you. We believe in you, Lord. And we thank you that you are working your redemptive plan out. And we get to be a part of it. You've invited us into it, God. And so we choose to be in response to that, to be in response to your love, to be in response to your faithfulness. And God, we pray as in the the coming weeks as we go through this series, I pray that you would help us to become more and more like your son, Jesus, that we would become more and more faithful. We love you. Amen. Amen.